Latino Stories, historias latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Lori Alvarez. Lori Alvarez was born in San Antonio, Texas, while spending some of her childhood in Northwest Ohio. Lori moved back to San Antonio 22 years ago. Lori has an array of experience with leadership, project management, lean management, and recruiting, and currently works for the American Red Cross. Outside of work, Lori stays very busy, volunteering with the San Antonio Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, where she currently serves as the 2023 uh, co-chair for the Alexander Briseño Leadership Development Program. And aside from that, she is a wonderful friend and also an agent for a local comedian, which you might know, uh, Michelle Cantu, um, who was here in the podcast a couple of uh, months ago. Bienvenida a este episodio, Lori. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here this <laughs> afternoon. We're in the afternoon already. Yes. Lori, talk to us a bit about yourself. Uh, how was your experience living in Northwest Ohio, which I'm familiar with, mm -hmm. and then coming back to Texas? So a little bit about myself. Um, so I'm fully here in Texas now. I've been back for some time and my family is ever growing here. Um, and so I attended high school locally, downtown Fox Tech High School, shout out. <laughs> and um, I went to school, came back um, here to San Antonio and have just been here ever since. And currently, as you mentioned, I work with the American Red Cross. I actually just made a big life jump last year, going from the corporate world to working with a nonprofit. Um, it has been an experience, but it's been an amazing experience mm -hmm. uh, so far. So I work a lot with volunteers with the Red Cross all across the central and south Texas region from El Paso down to Laredo, mm -hmm. up to Waco, Bryan College Station, and then, of course, including some of our big metro areas like San Antonio and Austin. Um, so, yeah, that's what I do now, living in Ohio, living in northwestern Ohio. Um, so some people always ask me, how did you end up in Ohio? <laughs> uh, well, actually, my great-great-grandparents were migrant workers mm -hmm. here in South Texas and would make the trip up to Ohio. Right. You know, every season come back and forth and some family just decided to stick there mm -hmm. and stay there. So we lived about two hours um, northwest of Columbus. We were about 45 minutes from Toledo and it was definitely an experience. Um, what, what was the town called? I lived in two small towns. The first one I lived in was Finley, mm -hmm. which is not so small anymore. It's kind of like a new Brumfield size now. Right. Um, and then Lipsick, Ohio, um, which I think even just going to school there, like when I was younger, it was the elementary, middle school and high school together in one building. <laughs> um, there was maybe 40 people in my class. It was just, it was really different. Um, the differences in people you could see as well. Um, 
But also there were still those families that were migrant families coming back and forth. I have a really good friend who's in Alamo, Texas now um, that decided to stay there. So um, it was really different. And making the move here was also a cultural shift for me as well. Just coming from a really small town to then being in a middle school the size of like the entire school I went to was crazy. (laughs) Uh, Going to middle school here, it was my last year. It was it was definitely a culture shock for me. Uh-huh. Um, it was very different. And then even going to high school, too, just right after that, um, trying to get along with people, find out where my place was. Uh, it, it was it was very different. Yeah. But um, I still keep in contact with some of the people. Um, everyone kind of knew everybody or was dating everybody. And, you know, it was kind of all the same <laughs> because it was such a small town. But um, I have gone back from time to time just to visit because we saw family there. And, um, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's been an amazing experience and I've had a lot of opportunity being here in San Antonio. So I do not regret moving here at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So Lori, we're here to talk a very, uh, about a very intimate, sometimes difficult topic, especially among, um, Latino families, which is, um, Latina birthing stories, right? Uh, uh, we all often think that everything just uh, works the way it, it just works, right? You get married, then you have kids and so on. And there is an expectation of that happening without any difficulties, right? But there is another reality that um, some women like yourself have had that is not always this easy, regular um, path towards, um, you know, having children. And so because of that, I asked you to, to come because, um, I feel like, um, a lot of women need to hear that mm-hmm. and feel, um, seen, feel support in some way. Um, Lori, uh, so I guess you met your husband here yes. in San Antonio. So you are married and have children, but your road to getting pregnant was not easy. How long did it take you to get mm-hmm. pregnant? So my husband and I are high school sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be, I think it'll be 21 years, 20 years. I'm probably quoting that wrong, but it, it's around that time frame um, that we've been together. But uh, yeah, so we did not rush into marriage or anything, you know, right out the bat. Uh, we wanted to explore our life, but um We've been married now for, let's see, since 2011. Mm -hmm. So um, it's been some time. But even aside from that, it took us almost eight years before we got pregnant. It was... um, it was it was definitely a difficult journey. Um, you know, women sometimes we can be our harshest critics, and you know, it was it was a lot to go through mentally, emotionally. In the beginning, you know, you think it's something that's supposed to be so easy to people right. um, should happen, you know, quickly, and it it just didn't. And it came to a point where you know, I just gave up. You know, and luckily my partner, my husband, was amazing and just saying like, hey, like let's just Let's just continue to live life. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, you know, okay, like we're happy together. And it's kind of the approach we happen. And then it happened. So, right. right. <laughs> great. It happened very quickly <laughs> after that. Um, so, yeah. Um, Lori, our Latino families often have expectations about uh, when their children, especially women, mm-hmm. should be married 
And then um, after they're married, there is this pressure, right, to have kids. How did this work out in both of your families? The expectation was definitely there. It's still there, you know, as I see it amongst our friends and family still. Um, but, you know, starting with my family, so I'm the oldest of five girls. Mm-hmm. And my mother was a single parent and she did it all. And uh, I applaud her because I only have three now. And I just, I don't even know how she did it with five, <laughs> five under six. And mine are like, you know, three under six now. So, um, but I, being the oldest, I was, one of the last ones to have kids though. Mm -hmm. Um, My other sisters had their kids really early on. And so for my family, I didn't really feel a lot of pressure in that space of, you know, hey, when are you having kids? You know, that question didn't really come about. I'm pretty sure because my mom was pretty occupied with the other grandchildren she had um, because there was quite a few of them uh, very early on. And um, also, my mom's biggest goal was really just to make sure that, you know, we went to school, we graduated, we were doing what we loved and just having more than what she had. My mom, you know, didn't graduate high school. She ended up getting her GED. She worked very long hours to make sure, you know, we did what we could do and just try to support us in the best that she could while also supporting two other children who had juvenile diabetes. So, you know, it was probably just a lot that it just, it never really came up. It was like, go to school, do what you need to do, you know, get a career and get it. Now on my husband's side of the family where I feel it's a little bit more traditional, Mm -hmm. uh, Mexicanos, Mexicanas, right? Um, For the first time I'd ever gone to Mexico with my husband's family there, you know, their family lives in Piedras Negras and in Eagle Pass. And so getting to meet that family and kind of see what their expectations were like, the culture and everything, I felt the pressure. Like it was very different. you know, even in our dating after high school, after college, it was like, well, when are you getting married? And you see your cousins and everyone getting married, they're already having kids. And, you know, um, it was like, "Mm, well, like we like to travel and we like the not having to get a babysitter. And that was really early on in our kind of, um, married life, if you will, once we did get married. But as soon as we got married, I, we would go to like weekly dinners with the family. Mm-hmm. We'd meet at a restaurant and, you know, see how everyone was doing. And, you know, the table started growing as people started having more kids. And, you know, the question, it was always the question of, Lori, when are you going to give your your in-laws grandbabies? Like they're waiting. And, you know, in the first few times you like you joke around, ha, 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 you know, we will. But then it was more to the point of like when I started realizing that there was something medically concerning, I I did suffer from polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, which a lot of women these days are now finding that they're suffering from. Um, And there's a lot of different symptoms and there's so little research on it that a lot of people don't know um, how to treat it or what really works and then helping women have babies. But um, I almost dreaded going to weekly dinners and at some point just stopped. And it would cause a lot of arguments between my husband and I, because it's like, why can't I just tell them? And my husband's like, no, they don't need to know our business. And I'm like, well, maybe they should know that it's not so easy that I can just, yeah, I'm pregnant. Yay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more so I'm 
you know, I have less than a 5% chance because I have PCOS and any other conditions that other people may have even less than that percentage. And so, um, the questions are always there. Eventually my in-laws stopped asking, you know, and they were just kind of like, mm, okay, we'll move along to the next son. Maybe they're going to give us kids. But the extended family was like, well, like we have all these kids here already. Like, why haven't you, why haven't you settled down? Why haven't you bought a house? Why don't you have a bunch of kids running around? Um, And it was a lot. It was a lot mentally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I really didn't understand the extent of how much it had impacted me until after I had my first baby. Mm. Because it really fed into that postpartum depression then after too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, can you share a little bit about um, how how that was? Um, I so when I had my children, people started to talk a little bit more about postpartum depression mm-hmm. within the you know American society, right. but not so much in the Latino uh, families. Right? There's there's a lot of stigma associated with mm-hmm. anything you know mental health related and then this very valid and common you know common uh, postpartum depression that women experience still was not uh, something that you you know talked about or mm-hmm. that people knew about or accepted as something that does happen right um so how was that for you so um my first when we did finally get pregnant just to kind of preface going into that but i had a very difficult pregnancy it, you know we think like once we get pregnant you know you're looking for that that morning glow and that you're going to have this beautiful experience and you get to do the well now right you have gender reveals now so it's like a whole party <laughs> and you get the gender reveal you get the maternity pictures and then you know baby comes out and should be bouncing beautiful baby and everything be okay. And uh, it did not happen that way for me. Mm-hmm. Um, early on in my pregnancy, I experienced a lot of medical issues, um, a lot of misinformation, even from some of the specialists that I got to talk to. I could never get the one same answer because I was seeing a different physician each time. Mm. Um, luckily I found a really great OB eventually after I had to do my own research and really look at like who I was going to be seeing. Um, but someone who was actually going to listen to me, I experienced some, uh, conditions where I had what's called an incompetent cervix. My daughter started to try to come out of me already at like 19 weeks, Mm. which wouldn't have made her viable. Um, so I went on immediate bed rest after that. Mm. And so I had to stay home, no work, like pretty much nothing couldn't go up and down the stairs, really just had to stay still in a position um, for a really long time. And and I had some great support from my husband and friends and family, but it was at that point where I would try to share, I don't know if something's wrong with me, like I'm cramping, this is what's going on, I'm experiencing headaches. And um, the, the same answer was, that's a part of pregnancy. Like, why are you complaining? Why? You should be able to do it all. Yeah. Or the the conversation was like, I had multiple children. It's normal. It's there. Like, it's, it's okay. And so then I was thinking like, okay, like, am I complaining? Like, am I making all this up in my mm-hmm. head? And it would even make me hesitant to go like see a doctor if I felt like something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a couple of scares where I ended up in the hospital at like 24 weeks, 26 weeks. And my doctors were watching me really closely. And then just the one thing that stuck with me that my OB said, she was like, if you don't feel right, 
you come into this hospital. I don't care how many times you have to come in and I don't care how anybody looks at you, but you call me and you tell me because you know your body best. You know, no one is inside your body, but you and that baby, you know. And so I really took that to heart and was like, okay, I'm going to do what I need to do. My daughter still came early. She came at 32 weeks. Um, That was a crazy day, just in a sense of like, when you understand what women are capable of and when women need support. Mm. I came down that day, my mom was helping her and my sister were there helping me. I came downstairs and I was I had a really bad headache. I felt like something was off. I checked my blood pressure. It was through the roof. Mm -hmm. And I called my doctor and they're like, check it again in 10 minutes. And if it's just as high, go straight to the hospital. So I did. It was even higher. Mm -hmm. Went to the hospital. I asked for some help to go to the hospital. And they're like, well, that's a long drive. And I was like, but I'm really sick. Like, I have to go. Right. (laughs) And so, um, you know, it was like, well, no, you should be okay. Like, go drive. And I did. I went, I drove 30 minutes to the hospital and found out I was already showing signs of preeclampsia. So I immediately was, you know, booked in and, you know, there were questions and we were watching the baby. We um, went into labor and delivery and they're like, well, we're just going to keep you overnight. Seems like your symptoms are calming down some. But then my daughter started desatting and her heart rate dropped. And um, doctor came in and said, no, we're doing emergency surgery right now. Mm-hmm. So delivered the baby. I didn't even get to see, like I saw her for a second and they whisked her off to the NICU. Mm-hmm. And uh, my husband went with her. And my doctor then told me, I'm so glad you came in today because you were tearing at the top of your uterus. Like you literally could have lost your life and your baby too. And, um, that was just troubling to hear right in the beginning. The next part was like everybody in the room, everybody in the room, like, Hey, how are you doing? And I'm just like trying to process that my daughter is in the NICU. I haven't seen her yet. Mm-hmm. Dad was still in the NICU with her. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, congratulations. And like, hey, so like, what's next? And I'm like, I haven't even seen my daughter yet. And uh, I was crying and I was just super emotional. My in-laws wanted to come visit, but my father-in-law was having some issues medically. And we thought that he might be sick. And I told my husband, Hey, like she's in the NICU. Can't see anybody. I'm not up to seeing anybody right now. And he gave that message and it was just like full blown, like, well, why can't we be there? Why can't we see them? Like she already had the baby and it was trying to explain like, Lori hasn't even seen the baby. The baby's in like (laughs) a glass container being worked on by the doctors right now. Yeah, let me um, just um, interrupt you here for Mm -hmm. a minute because... I, what you're saying um, is so true, right? And it's something that I think our families, our Latino families need to to really think about, maybe listen, right? And to understand what's happening. But I remember um, what um, advocates I had um, in my nurse, uh, my nurses, right, at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And they would say, if, you know, if you want your time alone or if you need this or if, you know, I can be the bad guy (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I can say that, you know, we need you to rest or we need Mm -hmm. you this or we need privacy or we need. 
And I thought, um, you know, like I, I didn't really need it because we didn't have a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I didn't have to ask for that, but, um, but what you're saying, um, you know, I had something similar with an illness and people, and it's not ill intended, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to help or want to be right. there for you. Um, so it, it, but it's hard for people to understand that sometimes you just want to be alone. Mm-hmm. You just want to process, or you just want to be like with your, you know, your husband, your kids, or, you know, just your immediate family. Right. And it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you don't right. want the support or you don't love them or, you know, nothing like that. Uh, but it could be stressful. Like right. it's a moment where you just kind of want peace, quiet. Um, and then, Toda la familia viene, mm-hmm. right? And so, yes. Yeah, so I, um, I wanted to comment on that because um, that is something that we need to really think um, about. How do we, you know, what what is right. it that our families, our women need at that moment, right? Can we can we listen to them? And the same, um, you know, comparing ourselves, like, well, I had, you know, seven kids and I right. did fine. Um, everyone's experiences are different. But is, is that right? Like really being open to thinking, okay, everybody's bodies are different. Mm-hmm. Everybody's experiences will be different. And how do we come along women right. um, and support them how they need to be supported? Not how we think is best, but how they, you know, need it. So, so yeah. No, yeah, for sure. I would say that um, the number one thing is like sometimes I just wanted someone there just to listen. Not really respond back and, you know, which even in, in myself now going through all the experiences that I've had, um, all three of my babies were Nikki babies. I did have issues with each pregnancy. My, my first one being the most traumatic, but I, I, the first thing I offer moms is like, I'll sit here and listen. And then they look at me like, as if I'm, if they want an answer for me and I'm like, I will provide the answer that I can, but definitely do not take that to be the end all be all answer. Like, please find the answers from your doctors, from other moms, because Mm -hmm. every experience is different. It is entirely different. It was really hard. I guess that was the hard part. And that really elevated my postpartum was anytime I I did go to seek answers, right? Um, or tried a different avenue like Facebook or any type of social media groups, um, working with like La Leche League and going mm-hmm. to their meetings and stuff like that too during my um, breastfeeding journey. I Anytime I went to my family, it was like, well, I didn't do that. That's not how it went. I don't know why you're saying that it's so hard. Like it was completely different. And, you know, none of my family had breastfed. None of my family had babies in the NICU. Um, None of my sisters had officially like gone through postpartum. But now looking at some of the things, I'm like, I think you did have postpartum and Mm -hmm. you just didn't recognize or didn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like I think that's just the most important thing is just – I feel like some women are the harshest critics on women as well. Like when they say things, I'm like, Ooh, that might've not been the best thing to say. <laughs> yes. I, I agree with you. I agree. So, so here you are with a, you know, an emergency section at uh, 32 weeks with your first mm-hmm. uh, daughter. And then how, how long did she stay in the NICU? She was in the NICU for almost six weeks. Wow. So that's probably, I think for any mom, like that's ever had a NICU journey, whether it was less than 24 hours or 
months. I've, I've known some moms to be mm-hmm. in there for months. I think the, the absolute worst of that journey is the fact that when you go home, you don't get to go home with your baby right, right. is probably the most common thing I've ever heard. But it was a journey in itself. And my NICU nurses were amazing. They were my advocates. They were my superheroes because they were with my baby when I couldn't be. And so. Were you yeah. able to breastfeed too? or not? I was not. Um, that That's a great question. So I was not. Um, but my first daughter was on donor milk because um, if they're, if babies are born under a certain term number um, of weeks, they automatically give them breast milk because um, the nutrients and everything in the mm-hmm. breast milk, of course, mm-hmm. helps with the um, healing and the growth of the baby at that moment. So I was very gung-ho of like, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. And I worked with a lactation consultant and I could, I just couldn't breastfeed. So I pumped Mm-hmm. And I pumped for a year for each of my girls to make sure um, they had breast milk. But uh, for me, at the end of the day, fed is best. I don't care how anyway. Like I, I feel like it when I re um, evaluate my journey of breastfeeding in my first year, that also played part in my postpartum of like being alone, pumping by myself, mm-hmm. being in a room by myself, um, and just having time to like listen to my negative thoughts at that time um, was kind of detrimental to my health and uh, looking at that and also at work too, right? Being at work and rushing through and going to a room, pumping as quickly as you can in like 15 minutes. We really just have to look at what moms are having to do to try and try and keep their babies healthy. I know in my previous workplace, I was like, guys, 15 minutes is not enough time for a mom. It's not. She has to clean her pump items. She has to put her milk away. She has to get ready. Like that right there is 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. A mom needs like 30 at least a minimum. And I I feel proud of that, that they were like, okay, like we'll look at the moms and, Mm -hmm. and do that. We like little things like that just to help moms give them that extra piece of time oh yeah um, to feel better because it's hard Mm -hmm. well so you weren't able to like physically breastfeed but you pumped and that's a big deal too because that also like you just mentioning the commitment to that also um is um is, is, is a lot, yeah. right? Um, and so I'm glad that you were able to at least do, yes. you know, um, make sure that your babies had breast milk. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it was it was a good journey. And I mean, it was difficult, but I, I encourage any mom to do whatever, whatever she feels will make her happy and keep her also like mentally where she needs to be, mm-hmm. um, which is why I say fed is best. Like <laughs> any <laughs> formula, whatever you want to do, right. whatever is easier for you. <laughs> Right, right, right. Uh, Lori, how do you think, you know, looking back, um, your own experience and, and, and your journey through this with, with, you know, your three pregnancies and Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, having to deal with, um, just caring for your children while they were still in the hospital. Right. Mm -hmm. So all of, all of those, the the things that come along with uh, having a baby and at the NICU, how do you think cultural practices and Latino families, why not? I mean, they've had an impact on you clearly, but how do you think that can maybe help shape or, 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 um, change, um, have conversations, right? Um, I'm sure that afterwards you were getting advice 
um, not ill-intended, but maybe not welcome, mm-hmm. <laughs> about how to best care for your newborn baby. I don't know. I guess I'm asking for... Um, how do we move? You yeah. know, how do we still like honor our family's advice and 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 care, but at the same time, um, have them listen to right. what we need? Right. No, that's that's a really good question. I would say, in my experience, and so you mentioned, right? Even giving advice, even though not ill intended, it maybe didn't need to be there. Um, yeah, there's that, you know, which our mothers and our mother's mothers have gone through a lot, different scenarios, different time um, of raising children. Right. And so, of course, like we want to pass on like, you know, what worked for us. And sometimes the approach mm-hmm. it is not best. There were many there were many, many times that um, my mother-in-law or my mother would say things. And, you know, at the time I was like in the middle of like my postpartum for sure with my first one where those things could be triggers to set, set you off. And though, again, it it wasn't meant to be negative or anything. It was more of like, just kind of forcing, like, this is what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, because then it makes you feel a certain way about a mom. Like you, you don't know how this is. Like this is your first time experience it, or maybe even your second journey or third journey is completely different than the first two. And, you know, I think the biggest thing, the biggest move towards that change is, is really just having an ear for listening and being open to just ask questions about how that experience was for you. And so what I'll share on is like depression. I made a comment about depression and how what I'm doing now is really when I um, go and speak on panels now about my experience, about the trauma I had during birth, not knowing that I not only suffered from postpartum depression, but also PTSD Mm -hmm. because of the experience. I got a laughing face of like, you don't know what depression is. Mm -hmm. It just took me back for a minute. Like, how can you invalidate my depression? And it was, it was more so like, well, you've never lost a child. So, and I was like, um, well, (laughs) I mean, I went through a pretty traumatic experience trying to have a child and it made me even question if I should have had a child. So like, you don't know the mind frame of what someone might be in that space. And what I, one of the things I've really learned recently working so closely with some of the nonprofits I work with now about telling stories, telling your birthing story is mental health is very much up there, Mm -hmm. very much a cause of maternal death after the fact, especially with women of color. And so that right there should tell people really quickly, we need to listen. We need to ask more questions and just be intuitive. Just ask how the experience was different because there are many different factors at play now that our moms and moms, moms did not have, you know, 40, 50 years ago that could have been a huge impact. Social media is a big piece of that. So um, I would say just being intuitive and willing to just sit in a circle and ask the questions and being open to to asking the questions on how the experience was different. Not so much comparing of like, 
oh, well, my trauma was worse than your trauma right. kind of thing, right? You're always trying to up another person. So that's what I would say, at mm-hmm. least from my experience. More listening, more support, mm-hmm. less um, less comparison, yes. I guess. Yeah, it's to, a competition, right? It's like, not, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for saying that, right? Um, when you speak mm-hmm. um, at panels or when you, you know, encounter women or maybe uh, women that have heard your story and, and want to you know, um, I don't know, chat with you about it, um, as they might be going through something similar. What do you share with them? What, uh, what's that, um, encounter for one, the number one thing I share is just listen to yourself, listen to your body. If you ever, when you go to a doctor's office, when you're seeing specialists, or even when you go into a hospital, sometimes that patient care is missed because there's, I'm sure there's a million and one things going on. You can sometimes be made to feel like your issue or concern just was not a priority. Mm -hmm. And then you can start to think in your mind like, oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm stressing about nothing and, you know, it's nothing um, to worry about. But if you know your body, if you know that you have a history of concerns or you just feel like something's not right, just, just listen, listen to yourself, be the advocate you need to be for yourself Mm -hmm. and then find someone who's also going to be an advocate for you, whether that's a partner, a best friend, a family member that at the end of the day is your go-to person that you know, if you're sitting in a room with them, if you're in a hospital with them, anything that they're going to have your back just as much as you would have your own um, is probably one of the most important pieces. My husband was always there by my side. He was at all of the appointments um, that he could be at, but he knew like anytime I questioned anything, he was like, let's go come on, let's go or call your doctor. Like, Mm -hmm. let's figure it out right now. And never questioned me, never made me feel like I was making a big deal out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, Be an advocate for yourself. I think out of all the stories that I also hear while I'm on the panels, because I get to sit on these panels with other moms telling their stories that are incredibly impactful, is that they had to advocate for themselves and, Mm -hmm. and, and do that because sometimes you're going to land on deaf ears. So you just need to just keep going, keep finding opinions, other opinions if you have to. Um, but I, I would say that in, in all spaces, just be an advocate for yourself. Right, right. Lori, thank you so much for this conversation. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for just giving me the platform. I, th- I think Latina women especially, there's so much to learn from mm-hmm. the experiences they're having right now. Um, and we are one of the areas that are most impacted with maternal, um, morbidity and the space that we're in right now, especially with everything going on in our world. It's just very important for more Latinas to share their stories. Very important. Thank you. Thank you.